Hi everyone, my name is Camilla. Uh, Roger and I are going to uh, read from the Bible. And the first reading tonight comes from Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 to 22, which is on page 113 of the Red Bibles in front of you. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 to 22. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then... He shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. 
Please turn to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting on page 1190. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am, I've come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. Good evening. Um, can I extend a welcome to you, uh, if I haven't met you as well? My name's Andrew, I'm one of the other ministers here. Um, you've caught us in the middle of a series looking at key themes across the Bible, uh, which we're calling a divine harmony. And this evening we're looking at sacrifice, which explains those slightly odd readings. Um, our culture has a bit of an ambivalent attitude toward the idea of sacrifice. 
Uh, on the one hand, we're quite big on sacrifice. Uh, we love the idea of, of people who give up things for others, uh, who make sacrifices for others. Uh, and we, almost to the point of worshipping those who die in the course of service, uh, like we do at Anzac Day. Uh, we love the idea of sacrifice as an act of selfless devotion, don't we? But on the other hand, we're, we're actually quite opposed, I think, to the idea of sacrifice in another sense. That is, the idea of sacrifice as something required to make things right. Uh, that way of thinking about sacrifice is normally associated with religion. And on the whole, we don't like it. Now, the idea that a sacrifice, like the death of an animal, for example, could function in some sense as, as a payment or a ransom to the God or the gods seems a bit primitive, a bit unpleasant. I mean, can we really believe that God would require a death? That he would be changed in his stance towards us by something like this? Surely that's really belong, that kind of idea really belongs to an older superstitious age, uh, like that depicted in um, Mel Gibson's bizarre movie Apocalypto. Who's seen that? Yikes. He is a strange man. You know, and the thing is, this disdain for sacrifice in our culture, this kind of discomfort with that, it's actually led a lot of people to be uncomfortable about a central aspect of the Christian faith. Because the Bible quite clearly describes Jesus' death as a sacrifice of atonement. What do we do with that? Well, this evening, as we trace the idea of sacrifice in the Bible, <clears throat> and it'll be a bit of a journey, but I hope that we'll see that things are actually a little more complicated. And that Jesus' death is actually something that challenges both our culture's self-assurance and simplistic notion and, and kind of overconfidence about knowing that sacrifice is bad, challenges that, but also challenges simplistic notions of sacrifice. Because Jesus' death, although it was something required by God, what was required was not just his death in the abstract, but his devotion unto death, his selfless love for God. And I hope that getting hold of that thought a little this evening will be both a rebuke to our complacency and also a real source of comfort that Jesus really has done all that we need. But let me also warn us as we begin that when we talk about sacrifice, we're really going into the deep things of God. And we cannot expect to leave here unchanged. We've got to tread very carefully because the, the place where we would like to stand this evening is holy ground. So let me pray. Father, we ask that you give us the right humility before your word. That we would listen and respond appropriately to what you have to reveal to us. And Lord, we ask that you would show us Jesus in a new and richer way. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> well, when the, the New Testament writers, when they talk about Jesus' death as a sacrifice, 
uh, their thinking is based on the Old Testament. And so we need to start our journey there. Uh, And I actually want to start with the passage that was read as our first reading, Leviticus 16. It gives us a great window into the logic of sacrifice. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, which would be great, have a look at Leviticus 16. It's on page 113. Um, It begins with a kind of terrifying reminder of what's going on here with sacrifice, why sacrifice matters. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. Now, those two sons, by the way, that that story is recorded back in chapter 10, and it's pretty freaky, okay? Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons, uh, they try and approach the Lord. I'll explain what that means in a sec. And they offer unholy fire. They do it in the non-prescribed way, and they die. And it kind of... Like, wow, God was really serious about this stuff. Uh, And God gives the reason in verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark. Come back to that. Or else he will die. Because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Now, you've got an outline. And really, the main point of this outline is the diagram uh, that I wanted to give you. Um, We looked at this last week, but if you weren't here, I'll recap it. This is a diagram of the tabernacle, the tent in which God had said he would meet his people. It's sketched out in Exodus. Um, Now, what this passage is talking about is it's saying, don't go into the center room called the most holy place. The way the tabernacle worked was that that was where God dwelt. In fact, he dwelt on top of the ark, which was a box, and on top of it, it had a lid. made of of gold, with two angelic figures, cherubim, on it. And God said, I'm going to appear there, and so you've got to be very careful. And so that place, that part of the tent, was called the most holy place, and it was protected by a curtain, as you can see there. And God's saying, Aaron, you can't just mosey on in there, because I appear there, and it can kill you. And see, the problem is the same problem we looked at last week. It's no small thing for God, the holy God, to dwell with sinful people. That's the kind of thing which you've got to be really careful around. Um, and the death of Nadab and Abihu, these two guys, kind of is a reminder that, is this really going to work? Is God's presence with us going to be, is it going to work or is he just going to destroy us? Well, the Bible's answer to how it's going to work is sacrifice. Sacrifice, as we'll see, makes it possible. Now, there's all sorts of sacrifices in Israel's life. Uh, If you want a really good way to go to sleep, I actually think it's really interesting, but there you go. The first chapters of Leviticus outline all the different types of sacrifice, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the grain offering, sin offering, guilt offering, that kind of thing. Okay, and they are actually all different. Um, But we're going to get at this topic of sacrifice by looking at the one ritual which stood at the heart of all of this. Uh, It was a ritual called the Day of Atonement, and it's what's outlined there in Leviticus 16. And it was one day a year when the high priest could go into the most holy place. And as you'll see, he had to do it pretty carefully. 
If you look at Leviticus 16 there, I'm not going to read it all, but I'll just fly over it um, and try not to get lost in the detail. In verses 3 to 5, it outlines the preparations Aaron's got to make. Pretty serious stuff. He's got to get his clothes right. Right? And then in verses 6 to 10, we get a kind of overview of the whole process. And what's going to happen is first Aaron's going to offer a bull, and then he's going to do something with two goats. One of the goats he's going to offer like he did the bull. The other goat is going to be what's called a scapegoat. Now, what that means, he comes back to in verses 20 to 22. But basically, two goats, one gets a better deal than the other one. Um, come down to verse 11, though. This is where the kind of the detail of the ritual starts. And we need to just make sure we've kind of got a sense of what this was like. It starts with the bull. Uh, if you're looking at your outlines, the place Aaron starts out here uh, where there's this altar. Uh, the altar's got horns on it, wooden horns molded onto it, which we'll come back to that. Aaron slaughtered the bull here. Right? Now, it's one line in the text, but actually that was, that's a pretty big operation, slaughtering a bull. Anyway, he slaughters the bull. And then what he did was he brought some of its blood right into the inner sanctuary, the most holy place. But he didn't just bring it in. He also brought a, a, a censer, which is like a stick with fire, which he put incense on so there was a cloud of smoke. And the point of the cloud of smoke was to obscure his vision of the most holy place, to obscure his vision of the ark, because that's where God appeared and as kind of a protective screen. Okay? So Aaron's coming in, he's got bull's blood and he's got smoke everywhere and he's got to go in and then what he's got to do is sprinkle blood on the ark, on the cover, the atonement cover. And then he's got to sprinkle it seven times in front of the cover. Okay, so that's what he does first with the bull. That's verses 11 to 14. Uh, you'll see in verse 14 the sprinkling thing. What's going on there, by the way? We'll come back to that. Then he goes out again, back to the altar. He, does, he gets the goat that he's going to offer. He slaughters it. He gets some of its blood. And again, goes back into the most holy place. And sprinkles again. And then actually he comes out and sprinkles and cleanses the outer bit, the tent of meeting. And then he comes further out and does the same thing on the altar. He gets some of its blood and puts it on the horns of the altar. Now what's the point of all this? Well, verse 16 helps us. Have a look at it there. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleannesses. You see, this is in some way a cleansing process. What Aaron's doing is he's using the blood to cleanse the, the sanctuary because somehow it's become polluted by being among the Israelites. Okay, well, after all that's done, then we do the thing with the scapegoat just flying through it. But basically what happens is Aaron lays his two hands on the goat's head and that symbolizes the transfer of sin. And then the goat is sent out into the wilderness. And it's symbolizing, I think, that sin is vanquished. It's out of there. Now, in the verses that follow the bit we read, there's actually some further aspects to the ritual. It was a, this is a big operation. But the main part of it is 
part of it is over by verse 22. It was pretty full on, wasn't it? There's smoke and fire, there's dripping with blood, you can't see properly, nobody else is there, so the high priest on his own, it's full on. What was going on here? What does it all mean? It's highly symbolic, isn't it? As we notice in verse 16, it's there again in verse 10, the purpose of the ritual is described in terms of making atonement and cleansing. Now, this purpose, if you just cast your eyes down, is summarized again in verses 29 and 30. The Lord says, this is to be a lasting ordinance, that is a a, a rule, for you. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or an alien living among you. Here's the key. Because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. And then before the Lord, you'll be clean from all your sins. Cleansing is achieved by an act of atonement. But of course, the cleansing is metaphorical, isn't it? Right? Because nothing is actually getting any cleaner. In fact, it's getting covered in blood. It's, it's, the, the cleansing is, is a metaphor. Because uh, it, it's, it's cleansing from sin, not from dirt. And that happens through making atonement. Now, what is making atonement? What does atonement mean? Well, the word atonement is actually an English word invented partly to translate the Hebrew of this. Uh, and they put together the words at one month, at one month. And it's actually helpful. It's not all there is to say, but it is helpful because it points to the idea that making atonement is about two parties being reconciled brought back together. That's because making atonement means, it means something like removing a grievance from a a relationship. Removing a grievance, an offense between two parties or between humans and God. And so, in this case, avoiding the threat of God's wrath. You see, sin... Sin creates an issue between people and God. It creates a grievance, something that needs to be dealt with. And in Leviticus, this is done through sacrifice. Somehow the offering of the life of an animal functions to remove the problem created by sin. But how how does sacrifice do that? Well, actually... In the Bible, it's never spelled out in detail, but two clues we get are the, the, the frequent association of the idea of making atonement and paying a ransom. Uh, this making atonement happens through sometimes the idea of paying a ransom, as if the animal's life is being offered in, in substitution for one's own life. Um, There's lots more to talk about there, but I think that's the key. Another clue is in chapter 17, verse 11, just over the page, uh, where God says, The life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. What's clear, you see, is that a cost is involved if atonement is going to be made. Something is required. The grievance in the relationship between people and God 
it can't just be pretended away. It's got to be dealt with. God does not, he cannot just forgive Israel's sinfulness without any cost, as if it wasn't a real issue. Okay, I've talked a little while about that, but it's helpful to get the categories clear. Now, if we stopped here, um, if that's all there was to say, we, we would just have to say that our cultural cringe about the idea of sacrifice is just different to the Bible. The Bible doesn't see it that way, and that's that. However, we need to notice that in the story of the Old Testament, things get a bit more complicated. And that's because in the Old Testament, there's a recognition as we move on that while sacrifice is required, it can never just be a matter of meeting requirements, if I can put it that way. Sacrifice is only meaningful if it's done out of a genuine reverence for God. Um, there's a variety of references on your sheet where you see that come out, but perhaps the clearest is there in Hosea 6, where, Hose where God says through Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Uh, if you want another really full-on criticism, have a look at the reference in Isaiah. But see, this criticism came to be central. And what becomes clear is that where there is no heart devoted to the Lord, Sacrifice is worthless. If sacrifice became simply a system, a mechanism, then it was just totally missed the point. And this shows us, you see, that making atonement is about healing a relationship. It's about removing a grievance where there's people involved, persons. And so sacrifice can only be worth anything where there is a heart for that to happen. And where Israel's behavior made it clear that that was not the case, then sacrifice was worthless. Now, I mention that because that criticism the prophets make is actually really important for understanding the way the New Testament talks about the sacrifice of Jesus. See, the idea that Jesus' death was a sacrifice is, is everywhere in the New Testament. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, you know, you know what lambs were for. Um, Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But the place in the New Testament where there's the most intense reflection on the idea that Jesus is a sacrifice is Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. So, Finally, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Hebrews 9, that's on page 1190, by the way. Hebrews 9 and 10 is just this sustained, brilliant reflection on what it means for Jesus to die as a sacrifice. And if you've never read it, can I just encourage you to read it? It's magnificent. Uh, we can only really have a look at part of chapter 10. Um, but have a look there, chapter 10, verse 1, we see the principle going on here. What he says is that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Okay, what does he mean there? Imagine the Bible, and imagine it that at the end of it, the God's future is like a light shining back, and Jesus is here, and it's... Actually, there is a shadow, isn't that convenient? It's casting a shadow over that way. And 
the writer says the law is like the shadow of Jesus in advance. Uh, And as such, it tells us a lot about him, but it doesn't grasp him fully. He says the reality was what was to come, was the Lord Jesus. And then he goes on to say what that means for the issue of sacrifice. Have a look there at Hebrews chapter 10. Second half of verse 1. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt any guilt for their sins. But those sacrifices, and he's talking about the ones we read in Leviticus, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, if you wanted a more hardcore criticism of sacrifice, it would be hard to find. He says sacrifice itself, those Old Testament, they can't actually take away sins. It doesn't actually work. Rather, those things, they were pointing beyond themselves to something more. And that something more is what Jesus has done. And that's what he goes on to describe in verses 5 to 7. What he does is he quotes a psalm, but he quotes it as a description of what Jesus did. And that psalm is actually a good summary of the kind of criticism that we saw in the prophets, in Hosea, for example. So verse 5, he says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said this, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, and the I here, he thinks, is Jesus. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus, he says, came with that critique of sacrifice fully in his vision. It's not just about these acts, it's not just about going through the religious motions. And then he explains what he means in verses 8 and 9. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burn offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. And then he points out, although the law required them to be made, you know, he knows what he's doing here. Verse 9, then he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first, the old sacrificial system, in order to establish the second What is the second? What is it that he's saying Jesus has done? Well, I think verse 10 makes it a bit clearer. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. You see, sacrifice has been surpassed by the thing that fulfills it, which is what? which is Jesus' gift of his own life to the Father's will. This is a kind of sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice like the earlier sacrifices were. It's the thing that the earlier sacrifices pointed to, an offering to God of pure and perfect devotion unto death. Friends, we must not talk tritely or simplistically about the sacrifice of Jesus. 
Jesus' death was a sacrifice, but it wasn't a sacrifice in the way Old Testament animal sacrifices were. It wasn't just the symbolic substitution of another life, and that's that. What Hebrews tells us is that what made Christ's sacrifice effective was precisely his devotion to his Father, his self-offering to God through the Holy Spirit. What was required to deal with sin, you see, to make atonement, what sacrifice in the Old Testament pointed to but could never itself be, was not just a death, but devotion unto death. It wasn't just a mechanism. It wasn't just an exchange of something valuable for something else. This was an act of love. What Jesus gave was not just his life, but his life in self-emptying devotion to God. And that was a gift that outweighed every debt, an offering infinitely greater than any sin, a ransom of simply unspeakable value. And that, brothers and sisters, means there is no sacrifice for sin left. Really, that's what the rest of this passage says at length. He points out that in the old system, the priests just kept doing it. Day after day, they offered sacrifices. Why? Because they didn't work. But when this priest came, verse 12, and offered for, one, for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He finished his work, and now he just waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, verse 14, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And he goes on to describe it from other Old Testament passages and points out that actually God said, your sins are forgiven. And verse 18, and where they've been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. So as we finish, let me ask you, have you really let yourself believe this? It's not that I think any of us is particularly likely to have a little altar set up at home on which we offer animal sacrifices of some kind, maybe the butterflies, or uh, although if you are doing that, maybe you should talk to somebody about it. I'll let Roger handle that one. But I wonder if we really believe that we have nothing left to do to pay for our sins. That our sins have been done away with. Really, truly, finally, forever. Have you let yourself believe that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient? More than sufficient, in fact. He has done all that is needed and more. He has made an offering big enough and beautiful enough to cover all our sins, he has made atonement for us. He has done it once and for all, so there is nothing left to do. He really, really has. Where do we get off thinking that we still got a little bit of paying to do for our sins? That we still owe God a little bit of payment 
what we're saying when we do this is that Jesus' death, oh yeah, it was, it was pretty good, but it wasn't quite enough. Not quite enough to cover the terrible little things that I've done. What a lot of crap. Brothers and sisters, don't dare let your sins, your weaknesses, your fears crowd out this magnificent thing Jesus has done for you. Our sins are nothing in comparison. They are but pathetic little shadows that have utterly vanished in the light of a sun big enough to send the whole world into light. If you have put your trust in Jesus, you have been made holy, perfect. How dare we live our Christian lives driven by guilt anymore? As Hebrews goes on to say, we have confidence now to enter the most holy place. You've seen the diagram. You know what that means. How can we live as if that's not true? The only sacrifices, brothers and sisters, left for us to make are sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. Actually, the Bible goes on to talk that way. If you look at Hebrews 13, it says, let us offer a sacrifice of praise. But that only shows how magnificent it is what Jesus has done. The only thing we owe God now is praise for his grace, not payment for sin. That's, that's done. No sacrifice for sins is left. But just let me point out that that is very different to our cultural disdain for the idea of sacrifice in general. Our culture lives, you see, in the shadow of this truth in Hebrews, that Christ has brought an end to sacrifice for sins. But we've taken that a step further. Any notion of sacrifice as dealing or paying for sin is now thrown out. No sacrifice for sins is left, not even Jesus' sacrifice. But that is just arrogance. Because although Christ's sacrifice wasn't simply a matter of meeting some ritual requirements, his death really was required. It is foolishness for us to think that sin is the kind of thing that can just be ignored. Now, sin is very real, and it creates a very real problem between God and us, which can be removed only at a very real cost. It has to be dealt with, paid for. And God can and does, in fact, as we've seen, God can and does forgive and forget I will remember their sins no more, he says. But only because he has borne the cost in himself. In the son's perfect devotion to the father through the spirit. The time of sacrifice is over. But only because the one great sacrifice has been made. So as we come to share in the Lord's Supper in which we remember and rejoice in Jesus' sacrifice for us. Let me finish just by reading to you from the end of John's account of Jesus' death in John chapter 19. You don't have to turn there, just listen. And let me invite you 
to reflect on what this says and to put your faith in this most wonderful of acts. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he gave, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we know that the truth is that we come before you as beggars. We're so full of ideas and thoughts and rights and we're so often convinced that we know what the truth is in the world, but Lord, before the cross we realize we have nothing to offer and no leg to stand on. But we thank you that in your great love for your Father, you gave yourself through the Spirit as an offering for our sins. And Lord, we praise you, and we put our faith in you, and we thank you. Amen.